Hey, good to be with you guys. Um, and uh, just like that, the Chiefs won't be playing a road playoff game again. It's kind of crazy. Playoffs. No, he's never played in the road in the playoffs. It's tough to do. Um, good to be with you guys. Excuse me for a moment while I get set up. Uh, in a world that just doesn't appreciate stories, um, well, they really do appreciate stories, but um, we always forget that. I was up till about two o'clock in the morning on Friday night because uh, I let my oldest girls, uh, Claire, Gabrielle, and Francesca, go with another set of girls to see, you know what to see, right? What would, what would they want to see? They'd want to see Spider-Man. And so they went to see Spider-Man. So that for those of you who are not plugged in to like what's going on in the world, Spider-Man's out and it's a big deal. And, uh, and so my kids went and I realized that late, you know, as we were letting them go, that um, I had said earlier in the week they could go. They had a number of things. We, we had a basketball game that night and then like a youth group thing that night right that was happening and then uh they went to that and then they went after that that's why they had to go to the 11 o'clock show of spider-man which was a two and a half hour feature film so and you know all the previews you know for those of you who haven't been to the theaters in a while it's beautiful it's a great place to go uh highly recommend it it's one of the great inventions of the united states of america we ought to do more and we tell good great stories um, anyway, so I was awake really late, and so I'm, I had fallen asleep on the couch downstairs because I was waiting for him, and Gabo comes in at 2.05 in the morning waking me up and explaining to me, Dad, you got to go see it. We got to go see it. I want to go see it again. It was just an unbelievable story. I couldn't believe what happened, and it, it's exciting, right? Um, as we've gone through this kind of course in Heart of the Redeemer, we've talked about worldview being... Uh, you know, the scripts, how we read the, the world, you know, the reading glasses that we put on, for those of you who don't put on reading glasses, you will. And, uh, and it comes all of a sudden, doesn't it? It comes quick, and then it's gone. And it's, all com- it's coming for all of you. It's coming. I'm just telling you. Anyway, yeah, you can reject it. It's coming. Um, anyway... Uh, the elements of our worldview are the stories that we, that we tell uh, uh, to one another. And we went through the story of, of Israel, and I'm not going to do through that. And the symbols that we use, the symbols of, of the Israel story were the temple, you know, the presence of God. This is where, the place where God is meeting his people. Another symbol was the Torah, the law the, that was given that um, this is, uh, you know, that on Mount Sinai, to Moses, to the people, to follow, uh, to be the people that was going to be a light for the nations, uh, which had a double kind of sword to it because Israel was both the carrier, well, they were the bearer of the promise of that, and they were also carriers of the curse the whole time uh, throughout scriptures. The practices that people do, oh, the other symbols, the land, 
Another symbol was the ethnic identity of Israel, that they were uh, the Jewish people. The practices that you do without thinking about it, so going to the temple to celebrate the feasts of Passover, uh, the of I'm trying to think what's the what's the um, the the teshuva one what's that what's that called anyway there's a there's a there's another one now I can't I'll, ah it's gonna come back and the answer is the key questions then we talked about and I, I didn't spend a lot of time but about the return of the idols and the servant that God has placed on His holy hill and we live in a time where idolatry has returned in a big big way. Uh, And it's not that the idols are any more gods than they were back when people were carving them out of wood and putting gold stuff on them, and God was using Isaiah to, like, laugh at the things that they were making. But behind those idols lies a darker power that seeks to, you know, kill and destroy. And as we turn our hearts and our attention and our minds and put our trust in things other than God, uh, there are forces uh, out there that seek to, that will utilize that and, and enslave us to those things that we, that we worship. Uh, and that idolatry hasn't just returned in the world, but it was returned in our own hearts and in our own families in our own, you know, there's no walls here, right? Um, and we're invited to turn from our idols and to be faithful, I think, to the Lord's servant, Jesus. This is how those things are broken, and we're no longer trusting in power, sex, and money. We're, we're trusting in God. We're not trusting in those things for our safety and our security and our well-being and our hope. We're trusting in Jesus now. He's the Lord. He's the king. I'm going to be loyal to him, and I'm not going to be loyal to these other things. That's, that's conversion. Uh, then we talked about the unexpected renewal, how the return of Jesus, the return of the king, and the launch of the age to come in real time, and the Lord's purpose for his people. It was a story, right? We live in a story in five parts. The, the first act is creation. The second act is the fall. The third act that we, we, we skip over, we, we pay a little bit of tribute to, is Israel, but we don't understand that as well as we should. The fourth act is Jesus coming to you know, bring to conclusion those first three acts. In the fifth act, this is the act that you know, Jesus completes the story of Israel, and he launches this uh, renewed people of God who are now empowered to go out and to proclaim his kingdom, to be his ambassadors and representatives into the world and to bring things into you know, order until he returns again. At the time of Jesus, the story of the people of God had stalled out, remember? While it was a great story, in the most important ways, it was a story in search of an ending. God had not returned to his people. The temple, though rebuilt, was not really a temple because the presence of God had never come back. They were in, and gosh darn it, the Romans are still, we might be in the land, but other people are ruling over us. We're still in exile, even though we're back in the land. We're not in charge. 
So it hadn't, those promises uh, through the prophets, through the kings, through Moses, through Abraham hadn't yet been fulfilled. And so there was, they were looking for a fulfillment of it. So after the creation, the fall, and Israel's um, double-edged history, we've reached a point where exile is still ongoing. The glory of the Lord had not returned to the temple. The Lord's servant had not appeared, although there were potential candidates, and the Romans were still in charge. And so when we read the Gospels now, when we open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories are told in such a way to tell the unexpected conclusion of this creation fall Israel story. They're clearly telling the Jewish story with a twist. Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. He's the servant of God. He's the one that they prophesied about when he returns, the presence of the Lord is returning to the temple in person. He's the one who is going to usher in God's new age. He's the one who's bringing an end to exile and forgiveness of the people's sins. So for the writers of the gospel, Jesus' death, what's the center point if you read all of the gospels? Where is the climax? Where's the most time in every single one spent? The passion narrative. The whole story leads to that which seems disastrous in a certain way. But they're telling the story in a shocking way. It's as as shocking as it might be even to us, and certainly at the time of Jesus, is his once and for all battle with all the powers both on earth and in heaven and his inauguration as king of the world happened right here. And the proof that this was his inauguration is that he rose from the dead three days later. He won. It did not look like winning. But that's what it was. This is the long-awaited, though unexpected and surprising conclusion to the story. Jesus comes through his ministry with a bitter word like most prophets did. Mostly, it's a bitter word of judgment against Israel, especially against the religious leadership of the time. You know the parable of the wicked tenants, right? Great parable towards the end says, you know, he's put these servants in charge. God's going to come back because they kill. He sends like three, then he sends his son. They kill him. They take over. God's going to come back and brutally murder those tenants and put other people in charge of his vineyard. And everybody who was listening knew he was talking about Israel as the tenants in the vineyard. And so they said, God forbid. This is our story. What? What in the world? Right? It's a bitter word. For Israel, And he laments. He comes back and they don't listen to him. They miss their time. They're too interested in their zeal for their temple and for their Torah 
and for protecting that life and going headlong into battle with the Romans where Jesus is saying, this is not going to end well. And it doesn't. In fact, he becomes the greatest of all prophets because in the year 70 AD, the Romans came into the temple and destroyed it, and it has not been built since. The early church always saw that as a fulfillment of the prophetic word that Jesus gave. His word was urgent. It wasn't just spiritually urgent. We got to save you so out of this because, you know, we got to rescue you for heaven. But it was urgent right now. You had to change. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen here in the world for you. They needed to reform and put on a heart of peace and love and patience and kindness and tenderness and take his yoke on them. That's not the kingdom they were looking for, though. There was a combat defeating death, sin, and Satan, as well as all the religious and worldly powers representing those things. And how did he do it? By going to the cross for his death. He exhausted their power and was given the name above every name. And he launched a renewed people. At the same time that this is bringing a conclusion to the whole story of creation, fall, Israel, it's also the beginning, right? Because the Lord is gathering people and sending them out to proclaim a new creation, the time of the age to come. It's the story of the dawn of new creation, the redemption of God's people, and the moment when our movement began. So when you're reading the scriptures, you can read them that way. It was the early Christian way was launched. And the gospels are written so that the story of Jesus is meant to undergird and reinforce the early church's determination to follow him, to keep on going following him, to live like he lived, and if necessary, to die just like he died, believing that God's kingdom established through his work was becoming more and more a reality in the world through their own lives. It's important to understand in this way that the Gospels are not really written as the founding of the church in the sense that, well, let's see, say this. Rather, they're, they're written as the launching of God's renewed people. It's not like God worked and he had this people this whole time and then Jesus came and he starts this whole different new thing. Okay, the story is the fulfillment of this whole thing. And if we just think of church as, you know, this institution that was launched, that Jesus came. No, he's actually establishing what the renewed people of Israel look like. It's those people who are gathered around him, who are then filled with his spirit, who are going out and doing his works in the world. That's what if we say church, that's what the church is. But you have to understand the founding of the church in that context as the launching of the renewed people of God. 
These are the true people of God. Um, it's also important to remember that by telling the story this way, we are aware of the distortion that can arise, which is in the, which is the Gospels. Jesus' life is primarily giving us a moral way to live and follow and him. Um, well, I, I, I could say more about that. I'm not going to. I'm going to keep going because I only have about nine minutes. So what was the purpose of the renewed people of God? To proclaim in word and deed the surprising conclusion of the story of Israel and Jesus, the end of exile, the defeat of sin, and of all the dark powers, both on earth and in heaven, at the cross. It's kind of surprising because it didn't happen at the end of history. It happened in the middle of history. And guess what? These powers still go, in, go around acting like they're in charge. <laughs> so we're, we have to deal with that. <laughs> they're overthrown, but they still think they run it. You can see this is going to be a challenging proclamation. And the end of that story is, is that Jesus Christ has made, been made king of heaven and of earth, of the universe. And what follows is those that are gripped by that news and are loyal to this new king are filled with the spirit and they're restored, they're redeemed, and they're launched as full actors into the final act of the play. Two things to keep in mind here. There's a radical thought that salvation is only or primarily about how sins get, t- get taken care of for us so that we can go to heaven. But that story is not the story of the scriptures, and for sure it is not covenantal creationist monotheism. This is not the Jewish story. The Jewish story was never about getting out of here to some other place. It was always about God coming and reigning on the earth. That's, that was, that's always the story. If that story about this split-level story between earth and heaven, and our goal is this is like kind of kind of not a really good place, and God is here to rescue us out of this place to go to a better place. If that's the story, a lot of things happen, and our purpose and mission get mixed up. And things like, you know, um, virtue and morality get reduced to boxes to check that seem pretty arbitrary. Our goal in life is to keep our noses as clean as possible so that when we get judged, the angry God doesn't get super mad at us and allows us into heaven. And, you know, in, you know Protestants and Catholics have de- dealt with this in different ways, but, you know, for us, you know, there's purgatory, you know, so we can hope for that. I would encourage all of you to read Benedict XVI's understanding of purgatory. I'll read you his encyclical letter, Space Salve, it's in there. Read it. You'd be surprised. He's not giving up on purgatory, but how he defines that is very, 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 very different. 
our purpose and mission get mixed up. Um, anyway, so that, that can happen. The dawn of God's age, though, God has returned to his people as he always said he would. He has taken care of sin, death, and exile. He's inaugurated his kingdom and kingship, the new creation, the age to come, the resurrection life, not at the end of history, but right in the middle of it. This affirms the goodness of creation and the goodness uh, and possible redemption of the world and everything in it. He's not given up on his creation. He has come and he has redeemed it. He has taken on all comers, including death, and defeated them. He has been acknowledged as the rightful king of the Jews and thus the king of the world. The proof of his victory, the launching of his kingdom, and the dawn of the age to come is his triumph over death and his resurrection from it. Though surprising, he is the fulfillment of all the prophets and of every prophetic word in the scripture. They all refer to him. That's why they can say he was crucified, died, and was, he was crucified and died and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. What scriptures? He has launched his kingdom, renewed people, forgiving and healing them from their sin, filling them with his spirit to be his representatives, representatives proclaimers, prophets, and ambassadors throughout the world. And in a surprising way, when his original Followers proclaim Jesus as king and the story of this kingdom. It has a surprising inner power in people's hearts and minds. The renewed people of God filled with the Holy Spirit have replaced the temple in the, as the place of God's presence. And they are the new temple. The land is no longer Jerusalem and those surrounding it. It is the whole creation. In fact, the land is now just the later signpost that points to the universal nature of world redemption. The Torah has been replaced with the Spirit, which is now poured out, as Ezekiel said in 36 and Ezekiel 11, on every heart. The law is not just written on stones, it's written on your heart, because the Spirit has been, is going to be placed in you. That comes to fulfillment in Jesus. The ethnic identity of the Jewish people has now been replaced with a people from every nation and tongue and tribe of all times and places. This is the new symbol of the new creation life. So the heart of the Redeemer in this is called, as a renewal movement, the beginning of the 21st century, more recently established, you know, Jen and I, you know, felt called, you know, 12 or 13 years ago, whatever it was, very much called out of the charismatic renewal to be a bulwark like other communities, to receive a renewed outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to be a mustard seed-like community, a renewed people of God, to be a people. Our prophetic history comes from the charismatic renewal, the Word of God community, the sword of the Spirit, from the community of Christ the Redeemer. And it comes at a time when many of the institutional elements of the church have, in my mind, been judged by the Lord. And he is establishing various ecclesial movements as signs of renewal and hope. And it's certainly understand, necessary for un, us to understand our prophetic history and call in the light of that scriptural story that I just told you. 
I'm going to read four prophetic words, if you guys have time, and then I'm going to say um, just really briefly three things that that we can do. Um, First prophetic word. Maybe I'll skip some of it, but anyway. August 1st, 1976. Sorrow upon sorrow, agony, terror, and sickness of heart will be your companions in the days ahead. The storm is rising, the clouds gather, lightning, wind, and storm, great enough to carry off even the strong, ready to break the slumbering and unprepared and the confused. I feel like that's come and gone. Where, where now is the shelter? Where the bulwark? In reference to the church, the refuge. Where is the strength of my church when the storm is upon it? Where was it? This was said in 1976. In hindsight, unprepared, divided, and confused, wink, weak when strength is most needed, it will crumble. The earth will be littered with the debris, the testimony that it was not ready. Weep for those who rush to find shelter within her when the day comes. Pray for those who trust in her defenses in that day when she is found unable to defend herself. Today is as the day of Noah when labored, who labored to build a defense against an unforeseen storm. Yet it is not now as in his time when I spoke to one man alone. Today I speak openly and I declare to any who will listen that preparation must be made for the salvation of my people. Yet it is like his day when they trusted in their own eyes and declared that all would be well. Here's another word about community life. I will tell you now something of what I'm going to do with you, and I will tell you something of what I will require of you. You are my word. You are also my servant. You do not realize what I am doing with you. I have, I have set you in the midst of the nations as a measuring rod, and I see by this measuring that they... Do not measure up. They are not what they ought to be. But I have not set you there that you might judge them, but that they might see that they do not measure up, that they might see the truth and follow it. I want you to be faithful to me, to serve me well. I will commit nations into your hands, but not until I have tested you and found you faithful. Look to the things that I put into your hands now and serve me well in them, so that you will be prepared for the day when I commit nations into your hands. This strikes me as true is because this was always the prophetic view of God's people was to be a sign to the nations, not to be judgment or protection out of, but to be a blessing so that other nations might come to worship the Lord. That to me is what that word says. July 1975, Bruce Yoakum Listen to me now, listen to me today, while I reveal to you part of my mind, while I speak to you of things to come. I have brought you together here to be the beginning of something very important in my church. I have brought you together here to join you together and to give you a vision of what is to come. I am raising up other communities all around this world, and I will want them to join together with you and to be together with you in unity. And I will raise up individuals around the world and I will rally them 
and bind them fast and make you one. Yes, I will do that as a source of strength for my church. I will make you a bulwark to defend against the onslaught of the enemy, those who are not prepared, those who are not ready. I will not have them swept away because they are not ready, but I will protect them behind the bulwark that I form out of you. I want you to be ready to join yourselves with others and to stand together with them in the battle against the onslaught that is coming and to defend the weak, to defend those who are confused, to protect those who are not prepared until I am to fulfill my entire plan. Again, very much in line with what the whole plan for Israel was. It's not about us and what we're doing. We are meant to be a bulwark for the weak and people who can't stand against the storm. That's the prophetic word. I tell you, you're a part and not the whole. And I could read that whole thing, but that's the important part. God's doing other things besides just this. Get it? Get it. Third, I've called you to speak a word to the church. I've called you and commissioned you as the sword of the Spirit, a weapon of war and a word from my mouth, and I intend you not only to engage in spiritual war, but to stir it up and to provoke it. I intend to wield you aggressively to rout the enemy. I intend you to proclaim my word as I have given it to you, so as to stir up and bring into action the forces of the enemy. The word that I have given you to proclaim is a bitter word. It is... If it is not bitter to you, then you, have not, you are not speaking it fully. The word that I have given you is a word of judgment. Speak then the word that I have given you. I think that word is a word of judgment against the church and especially the leadership of the church at that time and going forward about what was, hap- what was happening or not happening. That's a bitter word. Every prophetic voice, every prophet has a bitter word. It's not fun. Lastly, train your people for war and battle, for hardship and difficulty. Prepare them for what will inevitably overtake them in the days ahead. As soon as they are able to hear it, tell them of the days through which they will have to live. As soon as they are able to bear it, put them under the burden of service. As soon as they have been trained for it, give them a place in the combat, and as soon as they can receive it, teach them that their possessions are mine and see that they are placed at my service. You see, you are a nation at war. War is not far off. It is here. Teach and act and train and live as if you are at war. Aligning all of that with God's call to us, we need to understand that God's role for his new creation people is not changed And our prophetic word needs to be seen in the light of the New Testament understanding of God's renewed people. We are called to be his ambassadors. We are called to be a bulwark against the weak. We are called to love and be merciful. We are called to be a beatitude people and to serve. And we got to get people ready to serve. Not just serve this house, but serve out into the world those who need help. The bulwark is meant for ourselves. There's a prophecy about the easy life. I don't think it's just about being comfortable. 
I think the easy life from our perspective is we can just treat community as though it's a great thing, it's a great place to live, it's good for me, it's good for my family. That's not what it is. It's a place to be a sign and ambassadors of Christ that we are called in an urgent way to go out and to live that into the nations and to care for it well here. That's our call. It's not to create a separate life, a life of ease from the world, but to be a center of gravity for the world and for the church, a place of service, combat, and combat in the biblical senses, laying down one's life for other people. That's the combat. This is the combat. When Jesus goes to war, he lays down. This is what he does. This is what war looks like for us. Some of us are dying a very slow death. I know I am. My family needs me to diet. The bitter word is one of judgment against God's church. I think a lot of that has come to be, but we're not just called as, a, as Catholics in a Catholic church to be in an institution. We are called to be the ambassadors of this new creation. That's what the people of God in the scriptures for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Paul, that's what they always understood. That's what it was. So what can we do? Three things, and then I'll be done. I'm eight minutes long. I beg your mercy for two more minutes. First, pray, study, read the scriptures. I beg you. Pray, study, read the scriptures. I don't know what else I can say about that. Two, serve. How there are tons of ways in this world to serve. There are lots and lots and lots of needs. There's lots of poor, needy families. Hey, in Christmas, people need to like party too. I mean, we, people need to party together. That's a service. Think about that. It's an awesome service. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a party. Everywhere we go, there should be a party. Why are we, and to the point where, why are you guys partying so much? You're partying too much. And then we can tell them why we're partying. Christians aren't really like that. Very somber, serious, holy. We need to embrace Celtic Christianity. Listen to St. Patrick's hymns and drink some Guinness. Josh has all the music, and it's good. And it's fun. You know, we should probably have a couple of glasses of champagne before we go to church on Christmas morning. I don't know. This is my own thing. Okay, serve. Lastly, three, help build the body. Help ensure that our community is a place that others can come for shelter from the storm. We're not a gathering of the elite, but a shelter for those who are in the storm. And the world's in a deep storm. I know so many people who raise their kids in Catholic, and they, they, they don't go to church anymore. I'm talking really good people. Really, really good people. We need to build this so that our kids and other kids and other families can, can be part of this.
we got to do what we can do to build this community that can sustain itself and allow others in at the same time and can be of service to our mission in the world. There you go. Those are my three things. Amen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for giving me the extra 10 minutes. I'm done. Happy Advent and uh, early Merry Christmas.